On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to talk about the protest that moved to the front of the mayor's house on Monday night. Really? It just seems totally, totally out of line. Larry DeAnne, former mayor, will join us to talk about that one. We're also going to talk about vaccines. You know, they say that usually it takes years and years and years for a vaccine to come to market. So how have the COVID vaccines moved so quickly? And should that concern us? Or should that say something about how slow they've been before? And Bubba O'Neill will join us to talk about the NBA starting up again. Seems like it just finished. Well, training camp is opening. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I don't know if you saw the story. I'm sure you've heard about it by now. If you've been listening to CHML at all today, you've caught bits and pieces of this. Um, Last night, a number of protesters, kind of hard. I mean, defund the police. Yes. Homelessness. Yes. Whatever. Uh, Regardless, protesters showed up in front of the mayor's house and placed a coffin on the curb. Quite frankly, I thought it was sickening. I think there are rules of engagement that we adhere to in our civil society. And that is you can be as angry with politicians as you want. You can write them letters. You can send them emails. You can leave them phone messages. You can show up at council or wherever else and talk to them. And maybe if you really are mad, occasionally people scream from the galleries, but showing up at someone's home and dropping a coffin, which will let you decide whether there was a message in there. Uh, I, th- I thought it was so far over the top that it was outrageous. Nonetheless, uh, whether the people who did this feel ashamed or in retrospect or not, I don't know. I doubt it. Um, but I want to talk to, I thought I'd bring in someone to talk about this who, um, who has been there, not necessarily in the exact same circumstance, but been there as far as being mayor of this city and dealing with people who are angry at times and maybe could put himself in that position. He's now also a commentator on political issues. His name is Larry DeAnne. He joins us now. Sir, how are you tonight? I'm well, Scott. Good evening. You, as I said a moment ago, you have been there, not uh, not necessarily with a coffin on your curb, but you've been where the mayor is now. Um, when you heard about this story, either last night or this morning, what did you think? Well, I, I you know, as as you yourself um, indicated, I thought it was it was over the line. I, I didn't think it was appropriate at all. <clears throat> In fact, I, I you know, um, watched it because it was posted on social media. And I watched the uh, young woman, uh, I think it was a young woman who was masked up, so you can't tell these days, but I think it was a young woman, um, make her speech. And then they panned down to this coffin filled with roses, and I thought, oh my gosh, here we go, histrionics again. And uh, I thought it was, I was disappointed in the fact that they actually brought it uh, in front of the mayor's house, uh, where you know you you know your home is your castle, and regardless of the job you have, you should feel the safest in your own home. And here, these people are intruding on not only the mayor and his family's uh, peace um, and uh, right to have uh, a peaceful evening, but also the neighborhood. I'm sure that uh, neighbors would have looked out the window and maybe uh, would have seen them and would have seen this coffin. So I was disturbed by that. Then when I found out that they actually left the coffin in front of the home, uh, I thought that that just added, uh, that was, you know, the the salt on the wound, as it were, uh, because, uh, you know, I saw it as a a subtle message um, and not a very pleasant one, not about policy, but about, uh, you know, maybe doing some harm 
to a political individual who happens to be the mayor of the city, the chief magistrate of this particular city. So I, I just, you know, all around, I just didn't think it was appropriate. And I thought, you know, if they're trying to deliver a message around affordable housing, around defunding the police, which I do not agree with, by the way, um, I do agree that affordable housing is a message that needs to be heard. Uh, I thought that their symbolism, their over-the-line histrionics, I thought would have, you know, taken away from that message. It sure, I mean, you look, Larry, you could have level. said you you could have. Now, I don't and I don't encourage or frankly tolerate people showing up at politicians' homes. Period. But if you had decided you were going to do this. They were allegedly, or what we've been seeing lately is a bunch of tents down at City Hall in the forecourt. You could have put a tent there. The coffin to me was, uh, it, it, I don't know, it, it, it seemed so offensive and, as you say, almost like a, almost threatening in a way. I, I just wonder what the rules of engagement are. I mean, I, th I think we both agree on them, but w what should the rules of engagement be? Well, they should stop at private property. They, 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 you know, there is a public square, and, uh, and uh, you know, municipal government is the closest government to um, our people, and that's as it should be. And the public square is City Hall. The public square is a council uh, that uh, is accessible, um, open meetings, transparent uh, uh, meetings have to be held, and so if you have something to say, you can say it um, in that public square. But when you intrude upon someone's personal space, a home, and and deliver messages that, and and I'm hoping that they didn't mean any threat, but there is a subtle threat that can be read into bringing a coffin to somebody's home. That is way too far over the line, and it should be stopped. And, and I'm hoping that the authorities are looking at that and at least asking some questions, because, you know, we live in some very strange times, and uh, it, um, it uh, behooves us to not only act appropriately as politicians, but also as a civil society, because there are ways of delivering messages that uh, don't confuse people, first of all, about the message, and are not tinged with with inappropriate symbols of violence. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Larry, even if this was entirely benign, if this was entirely meant just to show the loss of people who are homeless, I don't get how somebody along the way doesn't think, wait a second, maybe a coffin is a bad idea. Somebody might get the wrong message from this and think we are threatening them. Well, and and uh, of course, you know that that is a um, a an interpretation that that very rightly could be made, uh, and so uh, I don't know how much thought they they gave it. Uh, I think this not is, enough. Well, uh, clearly not enough. But I think this is a group that is more interested in in the the spectacle of their message rather than you know what their message uh, is saying and where it's landing. It set aside the fact that Hamilton, I mean, and this, this is a policy issue that can be debated, of course, but Hamilton, of any community that I know, especially over the last number of years, is doing a lot to address affordable housing and homelessness. 50 million bucks. Speak, as we speak, exactly. 
they are putting in millions of dollars to address the issue. And, and Hamilton is not going to solve this problem on its own. That's why the federal government has announced a $1 billion program across all municipalities, so, which some may say is not enough, and I may be one of them, but, but at least it's a billion dollars. Hamilton got $10 million to do some modular homes. They're looking at that right now. They had put in $50 million from another source of, of, of money, some of which is going to address homelessness in this city and affordable homes in this city. Right now, there are a number of projects on the go in Hamilton as we speak to help address this, uh, this issue as well, not the least of which is the Indwell um, uh, housing project that was just opened up recently. So as a community, Hamilton is doing a lot. Is it enough? Are there enough resources? Does the province have to step in as well as the federal government? The answer to all those questions is yes. So these people are really ad- addressing a level of government that is doing a fair amount given the limited resources that it has. Larry, we're also in the middle of COVID. We're also in the middle of COVID. And we just heard from the federal government yesterday about what the deficit is going to be. And the provincial oh government is swimming in debt and deficit. I mean, it's, uh, I, I look, I, I agree. I agree with the housing thing. I think we need to be helping people who are homeless and get housing. I, I, this, this just to me seemed, seemed way off. Now I do wonder, did the police, and part of the, the irony of this is that this is a housing slash defund the police movement. Yeah. Did the police make a mistake back in the summer when they didn't charge protesters who were painting on the street on Main Street just to establish that the laws are the laws for everyone and your philosophy or your cause doesn't give you special dispensation, even if it may be truly held that that everybody has to follow the same laws was it an error not to do something then well and so you can always second guess uh folks right the the, the fact is they didn't they try to be understanding uh, i mean we live in a we live in a free society where protest is allowed appropriate protest is allowed and protest can be inconvenient and and that was an, an inconvenience i was caught in that traffic jam and i I didn't know why. Um, I thought it was an accident of some sort. And so it was inconvenient. I mean, it delayed me by 45 minutes or so. Um, at the end of the day, it made no difference to my, to my life. Uh, but it was an inconvenience. And, and so people decided to inconvenience the world so that they could draw some attention to their cause. Um, so we're in a society that allows these things. The police need to enforce the laws, but they also need to weigh the 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 appropriateness of doing that given uh, whatever the circumstance might be and and the fact that you know other than inconveniencing people nobody was injured at that time however you give people an inch they sometimes take a mile and so we've seen uh, that this group was emboldened by that um, I, I think the trustees by the way the the Hamilton public trustees weak need as they are they eliminated the police from their schools and I was a school principal, as you know. We relied on the police to act as liaisons, to inform the kids, to also educate staff around some of the things that were happening to keep everybody safe. And the weak-kneed public school board in this city caved in to a couple of people who decided that they were going to eliminate the police from their schools. So there's lots of things to criticize our governments for, 
Um, but we should also allow for appropriate protest. Absolutely. But measure it against the message that they're delivering. And when you're telling us not only to defund, you're telling us to disarm, you're telling us to abolish the police, because that's what they were chanting uh, the other day in front of the mayor's house and at, uh, at City Hall during the protests as well. When, when, when you're asking people to abolish the police, you're asking for chaos to possibly reign, and that is not a good message. Former Mayor Larry DeAnne, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Appreciate that. Take care. Uh, I, I'm not entirely sure, quite honestly, how um, what happened last night is going to help the cause of those who did the protest. And that may be the greatest irony of this is they were getting lots of attention. And now, um, what, what credibility do they have? Who's listening to them now? You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. We are hopeful these days about a vaccine. All of us are hopeful about a vaccine. We're hearing they're coming a safe vaccine. Let's be clear about that one. A safe vaccine. That's what I want to talk about for the next few minutes, because typically from what I understand, I am not a medical researcher. I only play one on the radio. But typically, a vaccine, I am told, takes years and years to create and study and test and test again and test again and then eventually do tests on people and then bring to market. Well, we're talking here now with COVID of possibly seeing a vaccine or even more than one vaccine ready to go, ready to be brought out to the people in less than a year. Nine months in some cases we're hearing. If, if we're getting them within the next few weeks, as we've heard, nine months, 10 months, that's, that's fast, it would seem. Should we be excited, therefore, or should we be a little bit concerned? Dr. Ed Mills is a health researcher. He's also an associate professor at McMaster University. He joins us now. Dr. Mills, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, I don't think I'm wrong. Am I correct me if I am, but um, we're talking about with these ones that we're hearing vaccines that are coming to market far faster than we'd usually expect, correct? That's correct. It's remarkable how fast this has occurred. So how has that happened? Uh, I think it's happened because of uh, remarkable collaboration that occurred early on. Um, these are sophisticated companies, you know, uh, Pfizer uh, I've uh, interacted with over the years top, top scientists working there and, and decision makers. Uh, Moderna is, uh, you know, a number of scientists from academics as well as from uh, different biotechs. Um, and they were able to move in a more nimble way maybe than the bigger pharma around. Um, and, of course, they were able to uh, benefit from massive injections of cash that, uh, at least for Moderna's sake, from the U.S. government uh, and from our own government, um, so that the money was no option. Uh, sorry, money was no uh, no hurdle for them. Uh, I think the biggest hurdle for them was recruiting people. Well, okay, so I know, and I, I step into this gingerly because I know many people listening don't like hearing or saying anything positive about Donald Trump, um, but his administration created this thing called Operation Warp Speed. Did that help? Oh, yes, I think it tremendously helped. And it was run mostly by military individuals who are, you know, uh, not allied with any particular party. They just want to get the job done and they know logistics. So they did a tremendous job. 
So what kinds of things when you, when I think most people have heard about Operation Warp Speed, but we have no idea what it would do. What would be the difference between what they were doing now and what they would do with a normal vaccine that they were trying to bring to market? Well, it would be fairly rare to have uh, much military involvement in the development of a vaccine for, uh, you know, childhood diseases or uh, things affecting teenagers. And of course, we don't do too much adult vaccination anymore. So the majority of the time that uh, individuals go into a vaccine clinical trial anymore, uh, it's run by corporations. They don't have a particular timeline uh, that they're the, um, that they're uh, battling for. They may not be in competition with any other group. And while we do use the term 10 years uh, to, to get a vaccine to market, the reality is many vaccines are developed sooner than that and get dumped. They just don't ever, there, there may not be a business model for them. Um, a lot of that 10 years that people talk about uh, is in fact just waiting around for your time to get in front of regulators. The actual trials themselves don't take 10 years. They just take a couple of years. Fascinating word you threw out there though, in that last comment, which was competition. And I'm wondering about that because there are several companies clearly, and, and I would think that for whomever gets there first, this is worth billions and billions and billions. I mean, your company is set uh, if you can be the first one to get out there. How much did the competition drive this? I'm not sure competition from a business point of view uh, was a massive driver here. I, I do think that when the pandemic happened, uh, workers of all types, health workers, um, police officers, military teachers, our, all of our essential workers saw it as an opportunity where they could give back. And for scientists, this was a great opportunity for them to apply their skills in the quickest way possible, uh, in the most rigorous way possible, to come up with something that they could contribute. Now, I didn't work on vaccines, but I was one of those people who um, worked very hard on, on uh, drug treatments for COVID. And uh, I've been so impressed with the, my scientific colleagues in terms of their openness to working together, something I had never seen before. Um, and so I'm hoping that in the long term, we can realize this for other diseases. If we can do this in one year for, uh, for a complicated disease like COVID, surely we can do this for many other less complicated diseases. That was going to be one of the things I was going to ask you about, because these things do take time. But if we can do this, why couldn't we do this for other things? Well, I, I think this is proven, <laughs> proven that we certainly can. And uh, it's pushed the boundaries and made us realize that there was previously a lot of red tape and far too many meetings occurring uh, and probably people traveling to meetings and uh, things that just occupied a lot of, of uh, space in, in where, where we could have just been working quickly for, for the purposes of scientific validity. Um, I think this has clearly demonstrated that people can collaborate when there is a need. Um, we're seeing even within the COVID drugs that are being done, uh, immense collaboration. And now the question is going to be, can we use this as an example? Can we really show examples where post, uh, post-clinical trial collaboration achieves knowledge we were not going to be uh, capable of achieving just by ourselves? And then surely we can apply that to other diseases as well. So actually, I'm extremely optimistic. 2021 and beyond, in terms of medical science, we've demonstrated we can achieve these amazing uh, outcomes uh, who knows what other diseases we're also going to be able to, to battle. And, and uh, I don't think anyone could, can rightfully say that's impossible any longer. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Doctor, just before the break, um, 
we were talking about that, you know, in the past, there's not necessarily been the same level of urgency to hurry this along, which could explain why these things have, have taken time um, in, in the past. Are we, were we overcautious or were we appropriately cautious then with those ones that took those longer, longer times? Um, I'm not, so that's a great question, Scott. I'm not sure it's caution uh, so much as unprepared to take risks or uh, unprepared to take new approaches to evaluate uh, drugs and vaccines. But COVID has forced people, uh, forced the medical community, the scientific community, to recognize, hey, we don't need to take these old approaches that we've been doing for quite literally 70 years. We can be much more adaptive in how we evaluate interventions and learn as we go. Um, you know, the vaccines would be a great example. You you heard about the early results of the uh, vaccines from press releases. Uh, that would have never happened before. We would have waited until the very end of the trial, however long that might have been uh, uh, planned for. So the fact that they reported the early release and so the public was getting this information, even though it hadn't been published yet, that was, uh, you know, an example of new way of doing medical research. Then they confirmed it. And there'll be further confirmation as the, uh, as the vaccines get rolled out. Um, but it's going to be a constant evaluation as opposed to the way we used to do things, which was, you know, as you mentioned, a 10-year procedure that everybody was comfortable with. One more thing about doing this so quickly. It, it does make me wonder. I know nothing other than the generic overriding general knowledge of COVID. Does this speed with which they were able to figure out how to put together a vaccine, does it suggest in any way that COVID was an easy, COVID was an easy virus to debug as it were? Well, that's a very good point. And let me posit this first of all, by saying your general knowledge of COVID is comparable probably to the top scientific knowledge as well. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Um, <laughs> I say that in the most complimentary way, which is that the general public has had a very intensive course in epidemiology and medicine over the last 10 years, or sorry, 10 months, and um, often know as much or more than the scientific community does about things. Because the scientific community seems to think, while we've seen, you know, viruses before, surely it will act in the same way as previous viruses. And we've seen time and time again recommendations being made uh, based on someone's knowledge of virology. And then it turns out to be wrong. And I think that's the case um, quite frequently with this particular virus. It seems to prove us wrong uh, consistently. Um, but I think that the, the general public have quite realistically become quite a good epidemiologists by now. My understanding is that some side effects, when you're creating something new, side effects might not emerge immediately. They could take time to show. But if we're hurrying this along, what if we put this virus, this vaccine out, and we haven't given it enough time to wait for those to show themselves? Is, is there is there a way that testers or scientists or researchers can expedite the life cycle or whatever you would call it, whatever the technical term would be of this vaccine to say, cram 10 years into a few months to see, or are we taking some bit of a chance that something could show up later? Well, I, I'm almost certain something will show up later. They always do. There are no vaccines and very few medical treatments that don't have adverse events associated with them. Hopefully they're very rare. To answer your former question, was, was, this, uh, was this considered a complicated virus? Not really. I heard back in uh, April from vaccine researchers I worked with uh, that they were quite confident they could get a vaccine that could prevent the 
uh, virus from making people sick. But what they weren't sure at that time was the safety of it. And so a lot of the focus since the beginning of these vaccine trials has been evaluating that safety. There are circumstances in the past where vaccines have made the disease worse. It's called disease enhancement. They really wanted to make sure that that wasn't the case. And there's been a sporadic few um, examples of individuals who have gotten sick during the trials. And uh, the data hasn't been published, so we don't know a whole lot about who they are. Sometimes they were in the placebo group, uh, as well as being in the active group. So I do think we're going to have to see as as, uh, as it gets rolled out. We, we haven't seen the published data. It hasn't been published anywhere. We've all just got by on press releases. I think we're going to have to see about who was enrolled. Were these mostly fairly healthy individuals, or were they people who had complicated health huh. histories anyway? Would you, I'm going to let you go, but would you, knowing what you know about the process of creating these things or of any treatment, would you offer yourself as a human guinea pig right now with one of these early versions or, or do you have some pause about that? Well, I, I, I absolutely would, although I'm not prepared to skip the line. I'm not a high risk individual. No, no, I, I don't mean that. I mean, would you be comfortable in taking it early on? without necessarily being someone to wait and see what all the side effects could be? Absolutely. Uh, I think that they have evaluated that. I think their safety evaluations have been very thorough, at least in, their, in, the, in the Pfizer, Moderna, and the Astra trials. Uh, the Astra trials have some funny elements to it, uh, but in general, these are very well-done trials with excellent follow-up, and I have not heard a lot of uh, adverse events. I, I do a lot of work in Brazil on COVID, where they, a lot of the patients were recruited for these three trials, and in general, the, the feedback I hear from my colleagues in Brazil was that everybody tolerated them very well. Um, and uh, so, you know, we, we'll have to learn as, as time goes on. But uh, if it were my family member and at a, who was at a high risk, I would say absolutely. Dr. Ed Mills, I love having you on here. Thank you for your insights today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Fascinating stuff because it is, uh, it is something that we're all waiting very eagerly to get a vaccine so we can get back to normal. But I think a lot of us also a little concerned that this is moving so quickly. What are we getting? Well, there you go. I mean, there's confidence from a researcher that this is not, it's very fast, but there's good reason why it's very fast and not reason that should cause us to be all that concerned. Interesting. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. It is amazing that it seems as though only Minutes ago, the NBA season wrapped up and guess where the Toronto Raptors are right now. They are in Tampa preparing for training camp. The NBA season is about to start again. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH Sports just got off the air, did his thing. And now he joins us here on the Scott Radley show. Sir, are you geeked up for basketball? Um, yeah, I think I, I totally am. I mean, it's funny. It's only 82 days since... Uh, you know, the Raptors were eliminated by the Boston Celtics in that. I didn't think it was that long. Thrilling seven gamer uh, series, which was so, so fun. Um, you know, and I think I'm anxious because, you know, it, the team is similar, but there are some changes. And we're going to find out if it's a downgrade or an upgrade. Mm -hmm. uh, because we're hearing opinions from both. And I think the, the neat part is that I think the locals are thinking it's a downgrade with the players, but people around the NBA are saying that the players that have been acquired are an upgrade over what's left. 
we will see for sure. And you know, it's uh, again, the Raptors get the short end of the stick. I mean, this is the, uh, the reality because they were the ones who had to go into the bubble before and stay there longest because of what was going on in Canada. And now they don't get to be playing at home. They don't get to live in their condos or houses or wherever they've got to live in Florida and find new places and get settled. And it's, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a wrench thrown in. So, you know, they have to be better Bubba and they have to be more resilient, which, um, you know, they've proven to be a pretty resilient bunch, but boy, you keep asking this of them at some point, you wonder if it just gets to be too much. Well, I mean, the good thing is this isn't a, that's not an NBA directive or, you know, something that the team, that this is the Canadian government, right? And I think there's all understanding. Now, remember, these players are Canadian, right? So in some ways, they're back in the United States. and Probably um, happy. And, 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 you know, in some ways, um, though many of them have rented places here in Canada or, you know, outside of Toronto or inside downtown Toronto, you know, look at it outside today, right? Compared I, to Tampa. Right, it's... I think, it was, I think I when I checked, it was 26 degrees in Tampa, Florida today. That leads for a lot of opportunities to golf and do many things. And unlike <laughs> the restrictions of the bubble, where they couldn't really do anything or they had to ask the team to leave or, you know, order in food, there are no restrictions for these guys now. So they might enjoy this stint in Florida on the Gulf Coast a little bit more so than they did in Central Florida and Orlando during the bubble season. I'll tell you what's really shocking to me about this. Uh, the NBA is, as I say, the Raptors left last night to go down to Tampa. They are, uh, today I think was their first practice or tomorrow, but I mean, they're right Sunday. into it. They are, Sunday, 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 okay. Sunday. Sunday. So they're right into it. And the season is scheduled to start January 1st or no Christmas, Christmas day, right? Uh, December the 22nd. No, the 22nd. I thought it was a Christmas start again. All right. I'm all over the place here. Nonetheless, December 22nd. And yet with the NHL that on most years starts even earlier than the NBA a little bit and runs concurrently, the NHL still doesn't even have an agreement on how they're going to run a season, where they're going to run a season, when they're going to run a season. It's, it's a tale of two leagues. Well, I think the NBA realizes the losses that were incurred in the 2019-2020 season and just don't want to go through that again. They're already going to lose money on on the 72-game schedule, which has been reduced from 82. Um, And, you know, the losses won't be as hard. Um, We're still looking at restrictions um, in terms of fans in the arenas. I don't think there's an arena... Uh, that will allow full participation from the fans, but you could get, you know, what we're seeing in the National Football League, some teams, you know, with up to 25% of capacity, maybe even more in some others. But we're, see- we're seeing about 20% around the league that are allowing fans, the ones that are allowing fans. So, there's, you know, so there is some capital that can be made, made up from these teams. And, of course, we're looking at a reduction in salary cap as well, too, which for the first time, I mean, in the National Football League, when is that ever going to happen? And that's going to happen next year for the NBA, where the salary cap is going to not increase as it steadily does year after year. It's going down. So teams are going to have to be very, very fiscally responsible in what they do. I mean, I, look, I don't think the NBA spends a lot of time worrying about competition with the NHL. In Canada, yes, maybe in a couple other cities that's the case. Or if a if an NBA team in a city is having an off year and that city's NHL team is having a great year, maybe attention pivots a little bit. But nonetheless, I, I'm looking at the NHL and thinking, 
how in the world, and I understand seats and, you know, Canadian rules and everything else, but how in the world can you let the NBA just completely take the audience and completely take the winter sporting marketplace and you can't come to an agreement to get yourself figured out so you're in front of eyeballs? I just, I, I, I just don't get it, Bob. I don't get it. Well, it's it's difficult. I mean, I mean, let alone with the virus issues that have to be, and of course, whatever restrictions have to be dealt with, and of course, the league, the NHL, and the NBA. Apparently, I think the book was like a hundred. In the NBA, it's like a hundred and eighty pages of the different regulations, COVID regulations, and restrictions and uh, expectations that the league have for each team. So the NHL have to come up with some type of protocol there. That's we have to look at that. That's important. Um, and I do understand what you're saying. But at the end of the day, you're looking at what was uh, Gary Bettman saying, January 1st was their day. And at that time, there was pretty much a, 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 an eye-wink eye agreement between the players and the owners on what the revenue-sharing model looked like. And apparently, the NHL want to take more money from the players in what they've called escrow, and which is something that's returned to the players many years later. And that's a problem. And the players are saying, who are already having their salaries reduced, they're saying, hold on a second. So, you know, if you're a player, you're saying, how much money do you want to suck out of me? Because I'm already, I'm putting myself out on the line under these difficult circumstances uh, where many of the people in the world have been affected. Um, and yeah, we're going to be affected to some extent, but you want to take more money out of our pockets than original pockets that have originally scheduled. So the NHL are in a very tough situation. I do not see them starting in January 1st. The they logistics can't. are just how could impossible. You? It's impossible. Yeah, how, you, you couldn't, you couldn't right now because you have to still get an agreement, get it signed off on, uh, arrange a schedule. Now I'm sure there's a schedule that's drawn up and I'm sure they figured out what the divisions are going to be and everything, but then you've got to get people into whichever country they're going into and have a 14 day quarantine period. And then you've got to have a training camp and then you've got to get started. It, it, right now you could not start it on January 1st. So it's already been moved. I'm sure. Anyway, yeah, yeah. you know what else, what else speaking of hockey is coming up and this one really intrigues me because I don't know how they're possibly going to pull this off is the world junior tournament is supposed to be starting on boxing day in Edmonton, which right now is having a huge problem with COVID. I, I, I don't understand how this is possibly going to work. And I know they're in a bubble. I know that, but I, I I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that they're even pushing ahead with this one, to be honest. Well, I mean, you're right with the bubble situation and that's something that the, Hockey Canada have done with the training, their tryout training camp in in uh, in, in Red Deer, Alberta. Um, so they were basically operating under a bubble concept, and already they've had an outbreak, and they need 14 days of quarantining. So you're looking at players right now that are in their rooms, they're playing a lot of video games, and and are doing video coach sessions. Um, because they can't all be together. I mean, you're looking at about 50 kids, you know, anywhere age between 16 and 21 years old, right? The 20 years old that are that you know are in this situation. And you're right, Scott. I mean, there has to be questions about how this tournament is going to happen when people, when teams from Finland, Russia, Sweden, United States, when they all come over. Uh, Germany, when they all come over for this tournament, I just, I, I, am with you. I'm optimistic. I'm hoping, I'm hoping because we, you know, it's, it's become a, 
you know, a holiday tradition to watch this tournament. Of course, the Boxing Day thing is something that's just been a bonus for TSN and their programming um, and cheering and cheering. And I mean, it's, it's that time of year where junior hockey just becomes the most popular thing. And it may be the only brand of hockey that we see. Yeah, it's, um, it's a case where I have sympathy if you have an NBA player or NFL player or Major League Baseball or NHL player who gets COVID. Right. Uh, however, they are also grown professional men who have chosen to do this and they are of an age when you say, you know what, if they're going to take the risk, we'll let them take the risk. I know that the guys who play world junior are technically adults, but they're kids, they're kids. And this is a once for most of them, a once in a lifetime thing they've grown up dreaming of. And I look at this and I think, is this the decision you want to put in their hands? Or is this a decision that perhaps should be out of their hands? Cause you know what they're going to say. You know what they're, every single guy on that team, if you say you are going to make Team Canada, you're going to be on Team Canada, do you want to play? Tell me there's one guy that goes, uh, no, I'm a little concerned with COVID. No, there's none. And, and, and none. you're right there. I mean, and you think about it, when, the COVID, when COVID became a real aspect of our life, you know, in, in the spring, March, and April, Hockey Canada were one of the first associations around the world to just shut down every, hockey, any gone. You know, no, no Grimsby Peach Kings, no, no, you know, Niagara Ice Dogs, Hamilton Bulldogs, everything shut down. All levels of hockey were, were, were shut down. And, and now things are still shut down, but I think because, one, hosting the World Juniors is always seen as a moneymaker, let's be honest. Yes, absolutely. Right? You know, in Canada. In Canada, in this country, it, it's a big moneymaker. Um, we've already talked about TSN and, and, you know, the programming that it provides with the many, many games. And, of course, when Canada are playing, um, you're looking at major advertising opportunities for, for their average, for, you know, wannabe advertisers on that network. So I, I almost feel like they feel like they're forced to, to try and pull this off. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I suppose, but I think it's going to be terrible PR for them. Look, it's great. It's great. And we just talked about how, how can the NHL possibly abdicate the entire sports calendar to the NA, the NBA? Right. And then we turn here and say, well, why are they playing? Okay. So it'll be great if they can pull this thing off and it's safe and they get to play and the ratings are great because everybody's home and no one's doing anything, but you get one or two players that get COVID and heaven forbid one or two that get it badly. And this is a fiasco. This is a PR fiasco of all fiascos. Right. You better be hoping and praying as we all are, but you better be hoping and praying this thing works out. Okay. Cause the alternative is what you just said. It looks like then we're doing this just because it's a money generator and we got to plow ahead. You know, I think I'm sure that hockey Canada are looking at the example that was laid down by the National Hockey League, who, let's be honest, they were very successful in their bubble concept um, in this past season. Um, I, don't, I don't think, no, no, there was not one positive test. But we're looking at a different time right now. This second you know, wave of this virus, is, it's, it's, it's creating a totally different situation and numbers are up. And remember, too, at that time earlier in the year, the interior of the country, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Alberta, their numbers were well below Ontario and Quebec. And now I believe Alberta are higher They're than higher. Ontario. Yes. Yep. So this is a major issue in a, in a real hotbed of, of the virus right now. 
The only thing, Scott, and, and I don't know, you consider this. Maybe there's not quite the pressure. If this tournament were have to, had to be delayed for three days, five days, or a team had to be shut down for a week or two during this tournament, perhaps the end result of extending the tournament is available now. Because many of these mm-hmm. players right now, I mean, think about the Ontario Hockey League, Quebec shutting down their Junior Hockey League yesterday, and there's no Western Hockey League. So these players don't have to be returned to their teams. So if there is a three-day break or some type of, uh, you know, a team test, you know, four or five teams, uh, players on one team test positive, and they're going to shut things down for a little bit, perhaps the urgency isn't there to complete the tournament in its required two weeks. Yeah, the, uh, you're right. You're right. And I mean, look, the entire, it's a, it's a produced in Canada event, the TSN people, and they do a fantastic job of it. They're all going to be there. No one's going anywhere. So yeah, you know, your point is well taken that maybe unlike any other tournament ever before, there is no rush. And you know what? They could make an announcement that says we're going into a two week quarantine after the third game. And then we're coming back and we're going to pick up exactly where we left off. I don't know. What's going on in Europe right now as far as leagues? I wish I did. Um, I don't know if the European teams would allow their players to stay and continue it. But yeah, it's a valid point that that says that maybe this is the one time when you can just, if you had to, take your time and finish this thing in late January for all we know. Right. People will watch. uh, People will still watch because at that time, it still may be the only hockey available. We don't know. And... (sighs) I would say probably a majority, even some of the, the, the top European players are all playing in, in you know, somewhere in the C, in the CHL for the most part. So. Very, if, very, uh, a yeah, very interesting thing, what they might do. I had never considered, you know, a long pause in it, but you're right that you're right with that possibility that there's no real rush at the back end this time. And that's a first. So who knows, who knows what might be, but yeah, that's that one. We're told that one is pushing ahead starting on Labor Day as always. And, um, we'll see, we will see maybe the, maybe this year, the world junior thing, it won't be a play, it won't be that bowl they have. It'll be, you know, a model of the COVID like a circular thing with a, with make a new trophy for this one, just for this one year only. <laughs> maybe they'll, maybe they'll, you know what they should do? They should grab that old world cup trophy. Oh, <laughs> the world's ugliest. I don't want to say what that thing looks like. Um, but uh, you know, and you know what, maybe the, the one trophy that you could do this COVID thing with is the Larry O'Brien trophy. You just put some nubs on it and it would look like COVID. <laughs> It's a big ball. The big ball of COVID that you win for winning the NBA. (laughs) Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. You can catch him 6 o'clock, 11 o'clock, all the time. Thanks for doing this. Go for Jesse. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.